brought to you by Elevate Uplift. You're listening to Rooted in Healing. I'm your host, Meg Sunga. Supporting and advocating for survivors of sexual violence can lead to secondary trauma. Throughout the Sadie Project, all six Sadie sites realize staff members were not only experiencing secondary trauma, but that their organizations were not adequately supporting them. In this podcast episode, we're chatting with Erica Blackwood, the Sadie Specialist at NC Casa. Get ready as we take a deep dive into this next Sadie lesson. Sustainable sexual assault services require explicit and agency-wide support. We are getting into episode four of the Rooted in Healing podcast. I'm so excited you're here. This is going to be a really lovely conversation. Our listeners have, uh, by the time they're listening to this episode, have listened to a myriad of lessons from the Sadie Project. Today's lesson that we're unpacking is sustainable sexual assault services require explicit very keywords here, explicit and agency-wide support. So Erica, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Meg. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I want to always allow my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves to our listeners. Um, You all have such rich backgrounds and a myriad of hats that you wear, sometimes multiple titles. So I always allow folks to share pronouns, um, titles that you hold, and also any important intersection, uh, intersectional identities that you have. So um, this is the time if you'd like to share that with our listeners. Sure. Uh my name is Erica Blackwood. I use she, her pronouns. I am the Sadie Specialist or Sexual Assault Demonstration Initiative Specialist for the North Carolina Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I have been doing this work at the coalition level for a little over two years now. Before that, I was working in um, direct advocacy with local programs. But I have been doing this sexual assault advocacy work for um, a little over 10 years now. Um, My identities that I do hold (laughs) are that I also am a survivor. So I kind of have a uh, personal connection to the movement. It is uh, a passion of mine. In doing this work, I also sit on several national committees. I work with the Resource Sharing Project on their uh, Building Resilience Project intended to help adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, And so that has been a labor of love as well. Um, I also uh, sit on the North Carolina Domestic Violence Commission's Uh, Victim Service Subcommittee, and we are working to uh, build capacity for uh, several marginalized groups. Right now, we are working on um, improving access for deaf, deaf deafblind, and hard-of-hearing survivors. Um, I also 
sit on a committee with Activating Change. And that is one of, uh, a lot of what I do is all my favorites. Um, They say, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And so I do do what I love. Um, The other committee that I sit on is a uh, persons of color with disabilities. I identify as a woman with a disability as well as neurodivergence. And so I think um, the intersections that I hold in identities kind of helps me to inform some of these committees that I'm sitting on, but also um, gives me a place where I feel that I can be authentically myself. But I am also uh, a veteran of the United States Navy. And I think that's about full. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> Other than being a, a cat mom and a wonderful auntie to four wonderful nieces and oh. two awesome, awesome nephews. I love that. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Erica. And shout out to all of your intersecting identities. I think that makes you a incredibly fit and informed for the work that you do um, because you are able to hold space in a different way, if that makes sense. You know, like you have some lived experiences that not everyone has and for for the uh, support to be able the support that you can give just reaches a lot farther so I think that's awesome so Erica we Sadie Project has revealed so much to us um, and you have a unique insight to it because you are the Sadie specialist at your organization correct absolutely yes okay so that's so for for folks who have been on this podcast journey with us, Rooted in Healing started with kind of understanding Sadie and its and its conception and and you know the history of it, the why it was important. But y'all, Erica is doing it real life right now. <laughs> you are putting these things into place. Absolutely. Um, so I I'm very curious before we get into some of the interview questions, just. Did this Sadie specialist role exist before you or you were you the first one to to bring it on at your organization? I think that I was the first one to bring it on at my organization. They had uh, written a grant um, to receive some funding um, to complete a project. They had um, some project goals and objectives, and they knew that they wanted someone um, to work on those things specifically. And so when I got hired, um, it was kind of just, it was a new role, and it was feeling my way through it. The thing that compounded uh, me getting in my role uh, was the fact that uh, the pandemic happened. (laughs) like maybe a week after I got hired. And so we all went remote and uh, the things that they had written in the grant for the Sadie uh, pro for their Sadie, my organization's Sadie work uh, to do and to accomplish um, 
kind of became something that was put on the back burner because um, everyone, we all were, you know, in the collective trauma of COVID-19 and trying to navigate through that and trying to help local programs navigate through that. Yep. Um, and so then it became um, just whatever I was putting into the role. Um, and that gave me a, a unique perspective because, you know, when I came on, the only thing that I was doing was really learning deeply understanding what the Sadie program was and um, reading the final report like through and through and Mm -hmm. trying to really get an understanding. And so um, I never, I didn't have any experience doing coalition work before then. And so now um, the, everything that I'm doing or everything that I'm understanding, I'm understanding it and I'm looking at it through a Sadie lens, because this is what I've studied. And this is what um, my agency really wants me to kind of focus on. Yeah. And so even in those times where we were navigating through the pandemic, um, I was still attempting to uh, find things for local programs to do and um, do Sadie related things for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but just with that lens, right? So it it became really easy for me to kind of um, focus on that because that is the the knowledge that I had from the very start of this position. Mm. Wow, I think that's so powerful to be able to have Sadie as a part of your position from the jump <laughs> to yeah, be absolutely. grounded in it because I really do think it informs those next steps and the priorities that you can, can continue to uphold. Right. So uh, kudos to your organization, because I think some folks and I, and I'm again, um, because I'm new to this conversation, but as I've been doing my research and as I've been understanding, you know, all the original sites and, and, and how this project rolled out, I can only imagine that like for some folks, it's like, okay, Sadie's great and we want to be able to do it, but like we may not have capacity to like fully implement it into the day-to-day, right? And so then it gets put on the back burner or it's like, okay, this was great. And then it's never really talked about again, you know, like it's not uncommon at nonprofits to do huge sweeping um, reflection and, you know, restructure and and trying to do better and not having the capacity or the you know for some leadership it's just not a priority right now right to continue it on so just kudos to you and your org for making a priority so one of the things that I want to ask in this interview for sure is so we recognize and this is honestly straight from (laughs) straight from Sadie y'all Um, programs cannot create safe spaces and give compassionate care to their clients if the space itself is not safe for survivors among their own staff. So I want to sit with that for a second. That's like, yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. (laughs) That makes so much sense. Um, So props to to Sadie being like, yes, y'all are pulling out the fire right there. It's hot, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. Um, The question I have for you, Erica, um, as someone who is survivor, Sadie specialist, currently doing the work right now, 
we recognize that the identities as survivors and advocates can be shared, as you know, as mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. How do we ensure support and and sustainability specifically for advocates new to the field? So as you said, you started in this particular Sadie role right at the pandemic, but you weren't necessarily like brand, brand new to the field. You've been doing this work. Um, right. But how do we ensure support and sustainability for advocates new to the field? Well, this one is kind of easy, but also it requires it requires some heavy lifting, right? Mm. Part of being a trauma-informed and person-centered agency is really knowing the facts about sexual assault and the effects that trauma has on um, individuals, right? We should all be aware of the statistic of like one in six women in the women living in the U.S. Um, have experienced sexual assault, and we know on college campuses that number is more like one in four. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also been published by Rain that one out of every ten rape victims are male, um, and nationwide that's about one in thirty-three males experiencing a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault in their lifetime. And this means that in our organizations, we likely have survivors serving as advocates, right? Yeah. And so with that being said, the heavy lifting comes when we actually do the work necessary to make positive changes in the way that we support our staff. And so those things can look like trauma-informed supervision and vicarious trauma and burnout prevention, right? Right. Um, And also as organizational leaders, understanding the real cost of attending to the wellness of your staff. If you put in the work um, and you build in the tools and programs you stand a better chance at having advocates who feel supported. Thus, that creates sustainability for your program. It's so funny because you started off that answer with like, it's kind of a duh. (laughs) Like, duh, this is what we should do. It's kind of like a easy answer. But at the same time, I feel like it's not. It's (laughs) right. Because there are people that aren't doing it. Right. And that's why I say it requires heavy lifting, right? Mm -hmm. Because even though it seems like a very simple answer, oh yeah, duh, we can just take care of our, our staff. Yeah. Right. But as people, we tend to get into a, this is the way we've always done it. Mm. Right. And so we just continue on. So you just continue to hire people. Those people get into those positions and they just constantly we're doing the same thing. It's just, you know, uh, an everyday routine that we get up and we come into the office. We uh, serve the clients as they go and then the people go home. Right. But it's important that we build taking care of your advocates into your program. And that means being, being mindful that the person who is sitting in front of you, your, your advocate, if you're the supervisor, you know, you have to understand that the person sitting in front of you is likely a survivor as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Taking into account all those things that come with their survivorship. Yeah. Right. So not just the fact that this person could be a survivor, what are the identities that they hold 
um, that could also be tended to, right, mm-hmm. and cared for. It is so important to uplift that, right? Because as Sadie discovered, Sadie itself discovered, the project discovered that, you know, when we're not taking into account the lived experiences of our indigenous friends, individuals who are ethnically diverse people of color, there's neurodiverse friends or LGBTQ friends. There's so many layers of that that affects survivorship differently. It does, Mm -hmm. just straight up. So 100% leadership needs to take care of advocates because advocates are doing some heavy lifts, man. (laughs) Some heavy hard work. Daily lifts, yeah. you know, like you could yeah. be seeing and, and, and just, this is honestly just for me. I'm not even asking as for the listeners, but for me, like when you do, when you, as an advocate, when you are meeting with people, how many people do, can you possibly meet with during a day? How many people can you possibly meet with during a day? And then thinking about some of the crises that these, because most of the time these agencies are serving people who are in active crisis, mm-hmm. right? And so how many of these crisis situations can you, as a person, just as a regular person, be involved in, right? right? And then continue on with the rest of your day, whatever's going on at home, right? Maybe Ooh. there are some issues at home. Um, maybe the person who was in front of you today uh, triggered something from your survivorship, mm-hmm. right? And that's just day in and day out that people are experiencing that. And what are agencies, what are you really doing to prevent the burnout or the vicarious trauma that may happen, right? We can limit the number of people maybe a person will uh, see or have access to a day. But another thing that we learned from the Sadie is that Um, A lot of times programs may have, um, you know, sometimes if they're lucky, they may have one person who handles all the sexual assault cases, (laughs) right? And so that was my experience before coming into the coalition work. I was a person who had all of the sexual assault knowledge. They just, I had to do the, the, the programming. So I had to, you know, go out into the community and talk about sexual assault, talk about sexual assault prevention. I also had to hold the groups because I was the person with the knowledge. So I'm holding the uh, sexual assault healing groups for men, uh, for women, and also in several locations per week on top of the fact that I had to see all of the sexual assault clients that the agency was having. That's a lot. That is a lot. That is a big expectation. That is a big ask of a person who um, themselves uh, struggles with the healing process of sexual assault, right? It wasn't until I got into this work and read about Sadie did I get the confirmation that that is not sustainable. Right. Right. Because what happened uh, for that local program that I was working for is when when I left, when the sexual assault person leaves or that, you know, the person that you have being the advocate for all Mm -hmm. sexual assault activities that go on in your agency, they take that knowledge with them. Oh, no. And then the agency is 
kind of left out there until the next person comes along and then the next individual comes along. And then what do you do? You basically do the same thing, Mm. right? Because it's the way that you've been working. It's the way that you all, uh, this is just how we've done it. Right. Right. We just know that we're going to hire a sexual assault advocate. And once the sexual assault advocate comes, they're going to take care of everything. They're going to do all of the hospital accompaniments. Uh, They'll do all the support groups. They'll do all the community uh, education groups and things like that. And that's really how, you know, you burn out people and you lose a lot of people. The turnover is outrageous. Turnover is outrageous. Before we get into turnover, I like where you I like what you did there. <laughs> like what you did there. You could absolutely be my co-host anytime. <laughs> awesome. Erica, you said something that just always resonates so deeply in my soul as someone who, again, has jumped from industry to industry in different spaces and places. Mm-hmm. There are people who the a the this is just how we've always done it is like nails on a chalkboard for me i hate going into organizations and hearing that because i'm like y'all suck number two man when you are the content expert you are hired for a very specific role but no one else knows what the heck your role does mm-hmm. it's a oh, scary thing like yes it's job security because i know that y'all can't do what i do <laughs> right but it's like y'all are screwed when I'm gone because right. I'm taking everything and y'all have not prepared twofold right so it it feels good that you have the job security that like nobody can do right. what I do to the level that I do it but at the same time um, it's very taxing on the individual yeah. right and so while it may feel like job security how how long are you able as a person to stay in that position and mm-hmm. take all of all of the things that are put onto your plate? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Erica, let's dig into staff turnover. You had mentioned it just a second ago. Staff turnover has been long talked about as a problem in the fields of sexual and domestic violence services. And we know that Sadie represented an opportunity to systematically track staff turnover over multiple years, which is pretty cool as a project. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, turnover is high. <laughs> and, right. and this was, you know, this is before, quote unquote, this great resignation that we're in, right? Like mm-hmm. before Beyonce's You Won't Break My Soul song came out and all of the TikTokers started quitting their jobs. Right, and release your job. And- release <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is before that, y'all. Right. So what's happening? Because I there's things contributing to this high turnover, and I think we've touched upon it a, a little bit in this conversation already, but how how can organizations address it? How is your organization addressing it? Like I mentioned earlier, I can say um, that I do know that two of the biggest contributors to turnover are burnout and vicarious trauma, right? And so again, that goes back to the lessons for organizations of being able to tend to the well-being of their staff, right? And they are empowering organizations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this goes beyond just 
making sure that um, your organization is giving enough time off for people. Right. This is, um, and, you know, we have a tendency um, as of late to have really talked about uh, self-care, 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 right? Mm-hmm. But it's important for um, agencies to build in a community of care, mm-hmm. right? Making sure not just that a person is taking care of themselves, but what are you doing as an agency to help them take care of themselves? Facts, yeah. Right? And then I will say that, um, and I'll go ahead and throw this out here because I know probably some of your listeners are thinking it mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're waiting for me to say it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but go ahead and give that honorable mention to paying your workers a livable wage. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what? we have to pay people a livable wage, yes. especially when you're talking about advocacy. This is mm-hmm. a really, really hard job, mm-hmm. right? And to do this every day, day in and day out, um, and the expectation is the person is going to come in and work a, a long 40-hour work week on top of the fact that they may have kids and mm-hmm. a family to take care of once they leave. Um, you know, if we're not paying them a livable wage, how can we expect people to be in this like we want them to be right. for the long run? Right. Right. For the long haul. If you're going to be in this for the long haul, you have to know that there are some things that um, you have that are that make this easier. Mm-hmm. Right. And that could be things like uh, good health insurance. That mm. is one thing that I can say that my organization makes sure that our employees have those those things. Right. So we have. um a livable wage. Mm-hmm. We have really good health insurance for for us as employees, right? And then the prevention of burnout and vicarious trauma. You know, I can say that um, our executive director, Monica Johnson Hostler, she is very, very good at kind of modeling what a good organization is about when it comes to taking care of their staff. Absolutely. Right. So we're able, she has zero issue with us. You know, a a lot of times we've, we're, we have a hybrid model right now where we are um, part-time in office and then part-time still working from home. Mm -hmm. Um, But even with that, and you know that some uh, doctor's offices, uh, they also do a hybrid model, right? And so- Mm -hmm. A lot of times we have things like therapy scheduled, right? And she's okay with that being on the on your actual work schedule and not having to take any time off mm. to do things like just go have some therapy. Yes. Right? She encourages things like uh, taking a walk during your work day, getting some fresh yes. air, stretching your legs. Um, doing things that take care of 
you as a person, as an individual. She's always eager to listen mm. to what might work for you, right? And everything doesn't work for everybody, right? And so she is really good about listening to the individual and what your individual needs are, right? For myself, being a person who identifies um, as being on the spectrum, I have a lot of things that I need and require for me to learn, for me to be engaged in my job. And sometimes I, because my diagnosis is sort of new to me, Mm -hmm. I am still figuring out things about what, what works best for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And her allowing that flexibility is really, really something that, that makes me feel welcome in this position. And it also makes me feel like I can continue and I can excel in my position Mm -hmm. because she's actually listening to me. We, were asked every week. If we had staff meeting, uh, we were asked during staff meeting. But this was my absolute most favorite question that I would hear all the time from my leadership is, what can we do to support you? Mm. Right? What do you need from us to mm-hmm. take care of yourself in this time? Just that question alone, a lot of times, <laughs> like really did it for me. I was like, I just, it just feels good to know that yes. you are supported. Right. I may not necessarily know what it is that my agency can do for me. And so a lot of times we were just we a lot of we were as employees, we were stuck. Like, yeah, we've never had anyone really ask us, what is it we want? (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have an answer. But thank you for asking. (laughs) Like, You don't know, but it's just the fact that they were open. Yeah. To hearing whatever it was that we needed. Yeah. Right. And whatever it was that they could support us in. And yeah. so sometimes it was that. Sometimes it was knowing that I could step away from the computer. Um, she was really big on uh the nap ministry. Mm. Right? And we taking a nap if you yeah. needed to. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever it was. They were open to hearing it, um, open to trying it to see if that if that is what made you feel supported mm. as an employee, right? And so for me, if I were to uh, be the leadership for an organization or when I'm talking to organizations providing TA, mm-hmm. that is one of the things that I ask, how can you build a community of care in your organization and I promise you that your staff will likely want to stay you touched on so much that just Erica it's (laughs) it was the uh (laughs) it was the what what support what support do you need right now and being shook about it being like what does that look like (laughs) (laughs) what does that look like I don't even know what I need right now but thank you how transformative that type of leadership is shout out to your leaders there that's fantastic phenomenal yeah phenomenal work happening at nc casa y'all i am proud erica we we told him some things today 
We did. (laughs) (laughs) We did. Oh, my listener is going to be like, she doesn't do this with everybody. I'm like, listen, but it takes a special (laughs) sort of connection to be like, from the jump, I was like, I feel good with you. I feel like we're going to get some good stuff and have good chemistry. I really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. And I am absolutely enthused to come back at any point and talk about all the things with you (laughs) oh listen say less we will always welcome folks back i i hope that this has the opportunity the sustainability to continue beyond these next couple episodes but as always even if it wasn't for a long time it was still a darn good time so grateful to be a part of this experience um erica before we go i always want to ask my guests because we are the rooted in healing podcast um we want to know advice for the listeners what is currently keeping you rooted in this work um hmm, that is a really good question what keeps me rooted in this work is uh knowing that it's really my survivorship right and so what keeps me rooted in this work what keeps me grounded in it what keeps me doing it is trying to be um, just a fraction of the person that I needed when I went through my uh, victimization right Mm. if I can just be even a fraction of the person that I needed I know I'm probably doing the right thing and moving in the right direction you've been listening to Rooted in Healing with me Meg Zunga my guest this week was Erica Blackwood the Rooted in Healing podcast is an Elevate Uplift production it is hosted by Meg Sunga and produced by Idea Pig Productions show notes research and copy editing by Mary Taylor Coley Mixing by Dustin Ramsdell. Special thanks to Elevate Uplift and our partners, the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition, the National Organization of Asian Pacific Islanders Ending Sexual Violence, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and the Resource Sharing Project. Stay rooted and follow us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts, show notes, and additional resources, head to elevateuplift.org.